Welcome to KPFK's Morning Mix Radio Magazine. Coming up is Voices from the Front Lines with Eric Mann. Wake up everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more back thinking, time for thinking ahead. Good morning everyone, you're in Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. Wake up and smell the revolution. My name is Julian Lamb, co-producer of Voices from the Front Lines, and today I will be filling in for Eric Mann. On today's show, first we're going to start off with news headlines from Amy Goodman, and then myself and Chani Martinez, lead organizer at the Strategy and Soul Movement Center, are going to have a conversation with Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders. Kamal is on the ground in Atlanta, Georgia, leading a grassroots movement to stop the state from building Cop City, the world's largest police training facility. We'll talk more about that with Kamal, but first, here's Amy Goodman in News Headlines. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Kentucky, a gunman armed with an AR-15-style semi-automatic assault rifle killed five people at a bank in downtown Louisville Monday morning. Eight others were injured, including a police officer shot in the head and required brain surgery. Louisville police say they responded to reports of shots fired within three minutes and killed the shooter in an exchange of gunfire. Investigators identified the shooter as a 25-year-old employee of Old National Bank who live-streamed the massacre on social media as he targeted his co-workers. Kentucky's Democratic governor, Andy Bashir said three close friends were among the victims, including the bank's vice president, Thomas Elliott, a longtime Democratic Party donor. This is awful. I have a very close friend that didn't make it today. And I have another close friend who didn't either, and one who's at the hospital that I hope is, is going to make it through. Just two hours after Monday's mass shooting in Louisville, one person was killed and another injured at a community college less than two miles away. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been 146 mass shootings in the United States this year alone. The violence brought renewed focus to efforts by Republicans to further deregulate guns, including U.S. Congressmember Thomas Massey of Kentucky, whose district includes parts of Louisville suburbs. In 2021, he tweeted a photo of himself and six family members holding assault-style rifles with the caption, Merry Christmas, P.S. Santa, please bring ammo. In Tennessee, the Metropolitan Council in Nashville voted unanimously Monday to reinstate Democratic State Representative Justin Jones just days after Republicans voted to expel him from the Tennessee House of Representatives for joining peaceful protests against gun violence. This is Nashville Metro Council member Delicia Porterfield speaking just before Monday's 36 to 0 vote. Representative Jones was honest about who he was, a bold and unapologetic advocate for the community. The people chose their representative. And with this vote, we will send a strong message to our state government and across the country that we will not tolerate threats to our democracy. Following the vote, 
Representative Jones and more than a thousand supporters marched to the Tennessee Capitol, where Jones retook the oath of office. He later joined debate on the House floor during an afternoon session. I want to welcome democracy back to the people's house. That on last Thursday, members of this body tried to crucify democracy, but today we stand as a witness of a resurrection of a movement of a multiracial democracy that no unjust decision will stand. Representative Jones also immediately called for the resignation of the House Speaker, Cameron Sexton. A second Democratic lawmaker who was expelled last week, Justin Pearson of Memphis, could be reappointed to the Tennessee House today if a majority of the Shelby County Commission's 13 members agree to it. To see our coverage of this story, including our interviews with Representative Justin Jones, go to democracynow.org. In Virginia, prosecutors in Newport News have filed criminal charges against the mother of a six-year-old boy who shot his elementary school teacher, in January. The shooting left Abigail Zwerner with an injury to her chest and hand. The boy's mother faces one felony count of child neglect and one misdemeanor count of recklessly storing a firearm. Zwerner is suing the Newport News school board and administrators, who, she says, repeatedly shrugged off warnings that the student was making threats and appeared to have a gun. The Biden administration's filed a lawsuit seeking to block Texas federal judges' ruling that revokes the Food and Drug Administration approval of the abortion pill mefepristone. The Justice Department is asking the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to keep the order on hold until a final decision is made. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Monday the administration's prepared for a long legal fight. This decision further stripes away Americans' fundamental freedoms and interferes with a woman's ability to make decisions about her own body. And it's another step towards the ultimate goal that we've heard over and over again from anti-choice officials that both the state and at the both the state and national level, eliminating access to abortion for all women in every state. Separately, the Justice Department filed a motion in a federal court in Washington state asking for clarification after that court issued a conflicting ruling on Friday ordering the FDA to maintain the status quo by keeping mifepristone available. The Washington ruling applies only to 17 states and the District of Columbia with Democratic attorneys general who sued over this issue. Meanwhile, over 400 pharmaceutical industry executives have signed an open letter condemning the Texas federal judge's ruling on medication abortions. The letter reads in part, quote, if courts can overturn drug approvals without regard for science or evidence or for the complexity required to fully vet the safety and efficacy of new drugs, any medicine is at risk for the same outcome as mefepristone." Unquote. In Burma, witnesses report about 100 people, including pregnant women and children, were killed today as the Burmese military junta bombed a village in the Sagaing region. A junta aircraft reportedly dropped two bombs and fired on people as they gathered for the opening of a new town office. Members of Burma's government in exile condemned the attack as a, quote, heinous act that constitutes a war crime, they said. The U.N. has warned of worsening humanitarian and human rights crises in Burma with mass arrest, torture of prisoners, the killing of civilians and media repression. 
The United States and the Philippines have opened annual war games in what the Pentagon is calling the largest military exercise of its kind in the South China Sea. Nearly 18,000 troops have joined the drills, which will feature live fire exercises. Australia's armed forces are also taking part. The war games opened just after China concluded three days of military drills around Taiwan. Earlier today, protesters gathered outside the Philippines' military headquarters as the drills got underway. This is the Philippines' opposition leader, Renato. Clearly, the war games are intended to project U.S. power in Asia. It's not intended to defend the Philippines. It's not intended to help the Philippines modernize. It's really intended to showcase U.S. power, and it is a preparation for war. Russia's military has launched a fresh wave of assaults across nine territories of Ukraine, with dozens of airstrikes and missile attacks reported over the past 24 hours. There are also continuing reports of fierce fighting around Bakhmut, where a pro-Russia official claimed mercenaries with the Wagner Group have seized 75 percent of the besieged city. Elsewhere, Russia and Ukraine carried out a prisoner swap on Monday, with each side freeing about 100 prisoners of war. Meanwhile, The Washington Post is reporting Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, a U.S. ally and major recipient of U.S. military aid, recently ordered subordinates to produce up to 40,000 rockets to be covertly shipped to Russia. President Sisi reportedly tried to keep the shipments a secret, quote, to avoid problems with the West, unquote. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut responded, quote, Egypt is one of our oldest allies in the Middle East. If it's true that Sisi's covert building rockets for Russia that could be used in Ukraine, we need to have a serious reckoning about the state of our relationship, unquote. The revelations came as part of classified U.S. intelligence documents found in a trove of files leaked online earlier this year. We'll have more on that story with journalist James Banford later in the broadcast. Hi, this is Tim Broughton from Hollywood, California, and I have been an avid KPFK listener for more than 20 years now. I found KPFK during the buildup to the Iraq War as I was searching for news and information that supported my worldview at the time, something corporate mainstream media never offered me and never will. KPFK offers a wide range of programming, a little something for everybody. But for me, one of the crown jewels of KPFK has to be Eric Mann's Voices from the Front Lines. No corporate, neoliberal BS here. Just intelligent and informative conversation about topics and issues facing our city, our country, and the world. So to keep this type of programming on the air, I encourage everyone listening to take the time to donate and donate generously to this great radio station to keep independent media alive. You can donate online at kpfk.org or by calling 818-985-KPFK. Thank you, KPFK, for everything you do. So hi everyone, I'm Julian Lamb. You're listening to Voices from the Frontlines here on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and 98.7 in Santa Barbara. Now, as black, brown, and people of color, we all have national hopes and aspirations to build a nation and a society in our political image. A political image of justice, human rights, wherein we are all first-class citizens. But under an oppressive imperialistic system, in order for us to fulfill such noble aspirations and enact favorable outcomes, 
we must remain vigilant, willing, and prepared to change the system that hates us and seeks to exploit and destroy us. That brings me to our interview with Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders. Kamal is leading the grassroots movement to stop the construction of the largest police oppression training facility in Georgia, also known as Cop City. They, meaning the state of Georgia, projected the cost to build Cop City at $90 million. Now I question, did they also calculate the huge number of black, brown, people of color, who are going to be murdered by the graduates and alumni of Cop City. Hmm. Cop City represents a systemic plan of premeditated sanction murder. It's as simple as that. And its construction has to be stopped. Here's Kamal Franklin, Channing Martinez, and myself in discussion about Cop City and the work to end it. So, welcome to Voices from the Frontlines, your national movement building show, Wake Up and Smell the Revolution. We're on for another show, waking you up with the revolution today. Um, today, we're going to have Kamal Franklin on. Um, he is the founder of Community Movement Builders, and I know that he's done a lot of work around police and cop watches along to, um, over the many years. The last time we had Kamal on, he was talking about his article on Malcolm X. Um, and this time, we are talking about this upcoming, or really in progress, um, cop city being built in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, welcome, Kamal. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So I, I know I've been looking a lot into Cop City and I've been following a lot of articles, including your articles and articles from, you know, everywhere, because um, everyone's speaking about it. It seems really, really scary. Tell us what is Cop City and where does where is this coming from? Well, Cop City is basically, at the very least, a $90 million project um, that, that was started by uh, the city of Atlanta in conjunction with the Atlanta Police Foundation, obviously multiple policing agencies, uh, and the Atlanta Police Foundation is supposed to be leading um, this, con co this contraption, which is basically a militarized police training center. Uh, 60 million of the resources that have already been garnered are coming from private corporations, and $30 million are coming from the city itself. And so Atlanta, for the first time, I mean, for the first time, what's going to happen in the country is that you're going to have a private nonprofit uh, organization that is leading the training for public city municipality uh, police uh, police force. And so that's never happened before where you have private corporate money, which is basically uh, paying for the training of the municipal police. Further, the uh, the. Um, amount of space that's being taken up. This will be the largest training center in the country. Uh, it is going to be over 90 acres of forest, which is about to be deforested um, in Southeast Atlanta, which is adjacent to a largely working class black community, where this training force will have mock cities for urban warfare training, crowd disbursement training, 
um, where in the original iteration, they've claimed that they've changed it now, but the original iteration, uh, they're going to have space for uh, detonating explosive devices. They're also going to have space for a landing pad for a Black Hawk helicopter. Currently, it's going to have over 12 uh, um, multiple uh, shooting ranges. Um, it's going to have mock cities again. And so we see this as, and it's going to, we should, I should also note, 43% of the police that's going to be trained there are going to be outside of Georgia. Um, and so they're going to be training police from across the country at this uh, at this site. And in addition to that, uh, Georgia, as well as several other police forces, but Georgia has a standing contract with the Israeli police force to do dual training. And so our expectations are that this training will be continued at the, at this site that we dub Cop City. And so we see this as a militarized training ground, which is meant to continue the over-policing of the Black community. And its, re, and its introduction into doing so was done so after the 2020 uprisings against police violence, which for us seems to suggest that this is also going to be targeted towards movements and organizations and organizers who've been fighting against the issue of police violence and terrorism in our communities. Now, now I know that that's a good jumping off point because I know that there was an organizer who did a protest um, that was killed for protesting this. Can you tell us a little bit about um, who it was? Sure. Well, early on, you know, uh, I'll start this way by saying earlier on in the fight against Cop City, uh, we had many demonstrations and at the early, let's say the early iteration of this fight, the police would break up those demonstrations and that would include uh, arrest, um, arrest that included disorderly conduct charges, resisting arrest charges, obstruction of governmental administration charges. We had approximately over 20 to 25 arrests during the first several months of protests. But those were charges which, you know, we would we would fight those, but those were charges that we sort of expected as organizers and activists, right? The standard charges that we all would get when the police raid um, or break up marches and demonstrations. Mm -hmm. At some point, because after the city council in particular passed the, um, the ordinance to go forth with the lease to the Atlanta Police Foundation, and part of the strategy switched to a defend the forest strategy, we had uh, dozens of organizers and activists who started to camp out in the forest, to live in the forest. Uh, they created uh, different uh, camps in, on the ground next to trees and different tree houses where they stayed. And because that gave more energy and new energy, the police and the Atlanta Police Foundation began to step up their tactics. And in fact, through an open records request, we found out that the Atlanta police, along with the DeKalb County Police, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and Homeland Security forged a task force where they began talking for the first time. We found this out in approximately November of last year, mm -hmm. where they began speaking about the idea of charging domestic terrorism against organizers and activists. And so it was in December of last year that the first raid was done in the forest, which resulted in the arrest of approximately six uh, forest defenders organizers who were charged with um, domestic terrorism. And again, to be clear, these folks were doing nothing but sitting in tree huts and sitting in their camps. And then in January, 
we had another raid into force where another five or six forest defenders were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism. And it was during that raid that the police agencies murdered Manuel Twitikita Taran, a forest defender in the force. Um, and why we call it a murder is because a private autopsy has revealed that he was sitting crisscross with his hands up like this. He was shot over 13 times um, by various police agencies and various uh, police bullets. The police have continually changed their story since the very beginning. And because somehow there seems to be no body camera imagery of the shooting, although Atlanta police in particular are required to have body cameras on and operating when they encounter the public. And they have other body camera image of other areas in the forest during that day. But somehow, no body camera image of the actual killing of Tortuguita. And so we dispute their narrative that Tortuguita shot at them first, and then they just returned fire. They've since changed their step. For their first, they said he shot one bullet, um, and then they returned backfire. Um, they've now changed that story to suggest that multiple uh, bullets were fired. So, the, and when we first heard the story, and I, I'll wrap this part up, and, but I think this is important. Um, and when they said it was one shot fired um, from residents in the neighborhood, they said that all they heard was a sudden burst of gunfire, not one quick blast and then a return of fire. Secondly, the videotape that was released by the Atlanta uh, police or the city of Atlanta, which the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is doing the investigation into this killing, uh, but also was involved in this killing made the uh, city of Atlanta stop releasing videotape. But the videotape they did release showed uh, that you could hear the sounds of a sudden burst of gunfire. And the police officers themselves on the videotape saying that that sounded like suppressed fire, which is code word for police fire. Right. So all of these things add up to us completely doubting this story, which leads to the first um, environmental activist and organizer in the United States being killed by law enforcement all on the land in which they are trying to build Cop City on. Um, take a moment to ingest all that. That's a lot. Um, um, let's talk about um, police like foundations or groupings that are not part of the city. I know that out here in LA that we have a similar problem where the LA uh, Police Protective League does a lot of lobbying for the LAPD and does a lot of just crazy sh and they're bringing in millions of dollars um, to fund basically their right to kill um, Black and Latinx folks in Los Angeles. I know that you said that the the, that grouping of folks is playing a major role in Atlanta. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more about what role they're playing. Are they the ones that organized in the private companies to support as well? So we see after, again, the 2020 uprisings, some of these police foundations have been around for years, if not decades. Right. But they were a small part of where police would receive extra resources, let's say, um, for for uh, things that the police claimed that they needed or warranted or just an additional resource outside of the official city coffers. Um, and this was true around the country again, but they played a small role, even though most city police forces 
usually take up anywhere on the small end, 30 to 40 to 50 percent of a city's municipal of a municipality's budget. Right. Um, but still, these uh, after the uprisings, even before 2017, but after the uprisings that started to take place after Mike Brown was killed, these police foundations became more important to a larger police narrative of of getting more resources to the police, particularly when what was in the air was talking about either defunding, the abolition of police, finding alternatives to public safety. They took a bigger role in not only finding additional resources, but also playing a media arm in getting out a narrative that supported the police over talking about the criminality and the violence of the police against our community. Um, here in Atlanta, the Atlanta Police Foundation even though Atlanta represents no long, no more than the, the 20th biggest police force in the country, has the largest uh, police foundation in terms of monetary revenue than any police foundation in the country, including New York at times. So this foundation has now, what, what it's done is now captured the resources of corporations who want to fund anyway. Um, and so these same corporations who used to say that Black Lives Matter have now shifted their resources into giving monies and money into the police foundation because what we really know for these corporations is that private property matters, right? That's what matters to them. And so they see this as a sense of controlling not only the training and again, a in a sense, a national strategy and tactics referendum around how policing happens in the entire country, if not internationally. So for us, these police foundations are unaccountable they are only accountable uh, to the public. They're unaccountable. Their only accountability is to the foundations that give them resources. There's already been discussion around uh, open records requests that they have said they do not. They uh, they are not required to release or give information about because they are not a governmental agency. Um, and so therefore that they don't have to talk publicly about some of their plans around cop city and other things that people should go back to the municipality and ask them themselves. And so the very people that the city is handing over the power to train to are saying that they don't have to respond to public inquiries into what they will be doing at cop city if it gets built. Um, and so we see this as insidious. We see this as a way to continue to privatize uh, policing and to give more power over to again to corporations to decide how policing is done uh, and take away whatever small amount of democratic choice that people have and saying how policing is done and so we uh, are truly thinking that this is uh, an experimental ground for how uh, policing will be done in the future again the continued militarization of policing the fact that this policing is beginning to be privatized in terms of who controls these operations um, and so we think we're continuing to uh, enter a very scary moment into how policing is done and the further militarization of that policing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess one thing that that brought up for me that I I I couldn't help thinking um, this morning and while you just said that is, you know, working with the LUSD um, out here in LA, they they sort of do the same thing sometimes where we were organizing um, to get rid of truancy tickets. And at that very same moment we were organizing, we found out that they had military-grade weapons. And so we had to create a whole another campaign. And it seems like that sort of model of organizing on part of the system, quite frankly, because it is organizing on their part, mm -hmm. 
um, is continuing to be carried out. And so I guess my question is, if the if the mayor is sort of supporting this and the city council is supporting this and every entity is supporting this, like what what is the what is the organizing strategy? I don't see it. Here. <laughs> You know, we, we've we've done our classic PowerPoint. I mean, power uh, power mapping uh, of the situation, right? And there's several power players involved in this. You know, to the credit of the movement, I'll say is that you know, over the two year time span, uh, at the beginning of this, this was something that they expected to go through without any problems whatsoever. All 16 city council members were for it. The mayor was for it. All the, in fact, all the major city council uh, candidates were for it. Uh, I mean, all the major mayoral candidates were for it, and the prior mayor was for it before our current mayor got in. Um, and so we were fighting an uphill battle since the very beginning. Right. Um, but, you know, we did classic organizing of petition drives, town halls, canvassing, rallies, marches, demonstrations, civil disobedience, direct action, uh, and some targeted direct action, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that has they expected in, in, in terms of their own internal paperwork that they would have this project either completed or near completion this year. This project is nowhere near completion. We've been able to knock out uh, developers uh, by doing shame and blame campaigns. We've been able to make certain corporations uh, back off and leave uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation's uh, board of directors as well as take money back um, and say they're not going to fund it. They've come in a little short of their expectation of the 60 million, uh, where now they've got, they've said that this, that so far they've collected approximately 54 million. Um, so we picked off approximately at the time four city council members who voted against us. Uh, and this is why we think they have gone so hard after organizers and activists, mm -hmm. you know, just to compete, to, to complete the earlier. Uh, sort of indition of the domestic terrorism charges after January, where Tortuguita was killed in the forest. Then there was another series of arrests after a demonstration downtown, where there was five or six arrests and people were charged with domestic terrorism. And then last month, there was another series of arrests where over uh, 22 people, additional people were also charged with domestic terrorism, bringing the total to approximately 41 to 42 domestic terrorism charges that organizers are facing. So I think because of the way in which this uh, seemingly small grassroots campaign, autonomously driven, uh, done by many different organizers and activists, has continued to grow, including having national uh, attention focused on it and international attention, they are now coming hard after organizers to stop this from happening. And so our targets continue to be the mayor, the city council, the corporations that are backing us, the developers who want to build this. Um, and we're trying to make Atlanta feel economic pain for going forth or trying to go forth with this with this idea. That includes calling for the D Democratic National Convention not to be held in Atlanta. And if it is, the promise of protest at their doorstep, um, trying to fight to make sure the World Cup doesn't come here and other things that we can do to continue to bring information, light and a challenge uh, to the idea that this uh, policing, militarized police base should be built. Um, let me let me go to Julian for some of you reflect. 
for your reflections on any of this? Yes, my name is Julian, co-producer of Voices from the Frontlines. And of course, you're on 90.7 FM, KPFK, Los Angeles. I'm curious, I want to go back because you made a statement and um, it kind of went by real fast, but it's something you mentioned. Let me paint the picture. First, we have a nonprofit uh, organization, a private organization, um, whose express purpose is to train municipal police. And let's just be honest, uh, training police in their ongoing systemic state violence against black and brown people. Mm -hmm. Um, But you mentioned that there was a connection between the Israeli and the ongoing cop city that's being set up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because we know that occupied Palestine, um, they have a force over there that the police are well uh, adept in the violence that they use. So I'm curious as to how that connection came about. What is that going to look like as they develop it? I mean, for for years, the Israeli government and the United States government, of course, have been allies for decades, obviously. Part of that allyship has been has been trying to normalize the country of Israel through various programs and practices. I think some of us have seen where the Israeli government will do trips for uh, particularly going into the black community, we should mention, for uh, connecting with Christian churches to do tours of Israel. Um, And so they've attempted various ways. Do they have connections to municipalities? So one of those connections has been connecting their police force to various police forces across the country in different programs. Here in Georgia, they have an extensive program in which they do exchanges and trainings uh, with one another Um, And has also included other European countries, including Germany, has been there. Um, And so these these uh, countries uh, together come here and at at times police uh, officers, I guess, go to Israel and do tactical and strategic training on various tactics involved in law and so-called law enforcement, which, again, I agree with you. uh, That's nothing but a cover for the suppression of both indigenous Palestinians and the suppression, particularly of black communities, black and brown communities, but particularly of black communities here in the United States. We see this as an extension of that because once there is this ex- extremely huge training facility available, it is it makes no sense whatsoever but to believe that that training center will, will again be a place where they will host trainings. Again, not just of Atlanta police, not just of Georgia police, but this facility is scheduled to train of, of to have 43% of those trained to be police from all around the country. So this will be training in which it will be training of national policing here or, or, or different municipalities, but also internationally other police agencies coming here to train, which for us suggests, obviously, that this is building a common tactics and strategies um, and information sharing, right? of what to do to stop not only movements, but to continue to suppress indigenous populations and or populations um, which they see as a threat to law and order. Um, and for us, again, because of the, the this, this training center has been an idea that's been in the works for a while, but it was only after the 2020 uprisings that they introduced this training center and pushed it uh, to make sure it happened sooner rather than later. And so wrapping up, Again, frequently when I talk about this issue, I say we should think of it like this. 
the same tactics and strategies that are used to oppress Palestinians are going to be imported over here in the United States. Uh, and the same tactics and strategies used to suppress black communities are going to be exported over to Palestinians. So this is an exchange of sorry colonial um, uh, um, um, uh, uh, connections uh, to continue to suppress populations that it sees as a threat because it speaks up for their rights, for liberation, for justice in their indigenous and in their different communities. And and I think that's a, such an important point because I, I think that it's really the it's the new iteration of the the transport of tactics, right? Like when I think of LUSD, for example, one thing that we found out is that the tank that they had was used in South Africa, right? How the hell did they get that tank, right? And so, um, and one thing that, you know, we regularly talk with students about is realizing some of the tactics that even your own school district is using and where those tactics really came from. They're all tactics of war. They're all tactics of, you know, what Europe has done in Afri uh, different African nations, right? Um, they're tactics of what the United States has done around the world. And so such an important point. Um, and really quick, I just want to say, and remember, the United States continues to have, the federal government continues to have the program where either for cheap or for free, it gives its military hardware to local police um, agencies. So that's why they have tanks and all this different armor, because they've gotten it from the federal government, right? So just so the things that they use in other countries, like you said, uh, to to perpetrate wars and invasions, those same weapons, when they get a little older and they've got the uh, the military industrial complex, those corporations making more stuff, what do they do with the old stuff? They ship it down to the localities so they can have all these these new toys and gadgets. And as we know, once they ship them down, these folks are looking to use them, right? They're excited to deploy them. They want to put on their 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 military grade uh, armor and vests and and weapons and tanks um and 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 military grade uh, vehicles so they can parade them around and show that they are the tough folks on the block. So they're looking for this stuff and they want to use it. Absolutely. And I was at a meeting in DC and I kid you not, this is a true story. One of the folks, I think it was from um somewhere in the north northeast, one of the folks in the police policing agency, I think it was a sheriff, was saying that they need this because there's snow and oftentimes the snow piles can't get up there. And so we need these military grade weapons. You have no idea. It was like, what the yeah. yeah. Sorry, block that out. Thanks. Okay. Um in in speaking of, of globalized militarization of the police forces where not lies, but resources and commodification matters and is paramount. And in dealing with this petty bourgeoisie imperialism, where do you see the fight moving forward going with Top City? I think the fight is going to continue to be one in which it, we nationalize the fight, let's say. So, you know, we're, there continue to be efforts here where we've had weeks of action where we've actually invited and folks have come down from across the country to participate in activities, direct actions, banner jobs, civil disobedience, marches, demonstrations to fight back against Cop City. Uh, but we also know that because, again, of the multinational nature of the corporations involved and the developers involved, 
that we need support from around the country. We need support internationally. Um, and so as much pressure as could be put on these corporations, in particular in these developers, um, to let them know that we see what they're doing, we're outraged by what they're doing, we're fighting back against what they're doing. We've had people who've gone to headquarters in various cities and done sit-ins or die-ins. We've had people who've done banner drops, who've read letters um, to the, the corporate forces. Uh, so we've put them on notice that this is not something that's going to be easily done um, and that, again, this will not be won without a national and or international struggle of comrades um, fighting against these corporate interests to privatize the police even further under the guise of protecting private property and stopping uprisings and movements against police terror in our communities. Thank you for that answer. So here's the the other thing before I get to the last point is one thing that's a trip for me is that while everyone is talking about going after Trump for, you know, really ridiculous, right? Um, these are all Democrats carrying out these policies. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the thing at these municipal levels or these city levels is that most of these cities, the most of these cities where Black people have been over-policed, over-arrested, over-incarcerated are cities led by Democrats, right? And even more than that, a lot of these cities are led by Black Democrats. Right. Um, and in Atlanta, which likes to pride itself as the Black Mecca, it is under this Black misleadership class that we've gone from a city that was at one point over 60% Black to now being less than 50% Black all under a black leadership, which claims to be speaking and working for uh, for black people anytime they want to get elected. But really what they've done, what, you know, what they call the Atlanta way is that you have these black uh, sort of bourgeois middle managers, which have filled the role of working for the white corporate and economic elite in Atlanta. And they do their bidding, right? So the fact in Atlanta that you have rapid gentrification, house prices that are out of control, the continued over-policing, the building of the, the attempt to build this cop city, um, all lead to working class people and poor people can no longer afford to live in Atlanta. Um, and so you, what, you, uh, what you've developed here, and I think this is happening in other places too, is basically something that's akin to an economic sundown city, right? Where like back in the old days, there's a sundown city which was strictly based on race. You can come to the city during the daytime, work, um, uh, um, um, uh, uh, work, work at the various jobs or whatever that you had, but at a certain hour you had to be out under the threat of arrest or murder. Now today what we have developing is um, still somewhat based on race, but now because you can't overtly say it's based on race, well maybe we are returning to a time period where folks can overtly say I, that. I, I think yeah. honestly, um, but the economic, the economic way in which it's implemented is that you can't afford to be in a city. And so if you're not working a shift, you have no reason to be in the city, according to, to um, policing authorities and other municipal authorities. Um, and so what you have is a city which is being basically turned into a San Francisco type and a, a Seattle type of city where it's too expensive for poor and working class, particularly poor and working class black people to live. And they're being pushed out. And the people who are doing it, the face of that are these black uh, Democratic leaders who have teamed up on, particularly when it comes to Cop City, um, and I think this is true in some other areas, but who teamed up uh, here with the Republican right-wing white supremacist governor 
um, who is on board with building Cop City, who, of course, the charges of, of domestic terrorism were state charges. So the connections and the attitudes and the partnership is real. And the people who suffer despite the rhetoric of right versus left in terms of the Democrats and Republicans, but it's really the economic elite um, and the serving of the Democrats and Republicans to that economic elite uh, that goes towards pushing out, again, mostly black and working class and poor people from Atlanta and various other large cities. Yeah, and I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's it's definitely a trend in other cities, as you said, like even in Los Angeles, the black population, you know, we're down to 9% from 25% in the 1960s, 1970s, right? So um, it is a true struggle. As we always end is, what's the call to action for folks who are not living in Atlanta, um, living in New York, LA, and other places, what is the call to action? What is the best way that we can be helpful to this movement? There's various things that we've asked partners to do from around the country, comrades, people who are interested in this struggle. Uh, at our website, communitymovementbuilders.org, we have a Stop Cop City page where folks can go to see the different things that they can do. And it's everything from the benign and easy. We have places where people can sign petitions, they can do call-ins to the developers, the corporations, uh, the elected officials demanding that Cop City get stopped. Uh, we've asked people to do actions in their individual cities. We just got finished in uh, March of doing a day of action around the country where we had over 20 countries responding by doing an anti-police violence, anti-police terrorism day uh, and highlighting Cop City here in Atlanta and also hiding, hi, uh, highlighting the killing in Memphis of Tyree Nichols. So. Uh, we ask folks to do, to continue to do, uh, organizing against some of these, because these corporations are multinational corporations, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, um, um, Waffle House, um, uh, Delta, like, you know, the list goes, UPS, the list goes on and on. There's good targets for everybody in their major cities uh, to do banner drops, civil disobedience, direct action, marches, um, anything that they think is possible to continue to put pressure on these corporations um, and these developers to let them know that they don't have the final word on this. It's the people who have the final word. And uh, so it's that that's the kind of unity that we all need and want uh, in terms of trying to stop Cop City. Oh, man, I'm going to try not to talk about Wells Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Godly, man. <laughs> Things they are doing in every city in LA, they are causing havoc as always. Um, but here's the key, folks. Voices is trying to be an organizer-sponsored radio, not listener-sponsored radio. You heard come out. Go to communitymovementbuilders.org right now and take the latest action that you can do. Everything from a phone call to a petition to even, you know, for Voices and for the Strategy Center, we might even consider going to Atlanta at a big, key, pivotal time. And so if you want to join some sort of delegation of that, we want to hear from you as well. Um, all of the information will be on the Voices from the Front Lines website. Uh, thanks, out for being on. It means a lot. Um, we will definitely continue to have you on, especially as this uh, continues to develop. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is Kamal Franklin from Community Movement Builders. You're listening to Voices from the Front Lines.
You're listening to Voices from the Frontlines here on KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles and 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Julian Lamb. You've heard a great conversation with Kamal Franklin of Community Movement Builders, Channing Martinez, and myself. You also heard great music from Steel Pulse and Kali Buzz and upcoming music by Sly and Family Stone. But before I continue with the show, we here at Voices from the Frontlines are grateful to have KPFK as a platform to give a loud voice to the voiceless, marginalized, and oppressed people. But all this can't be done without support from you, the listeners. We're asking you to support KPFK by calling 818-985-KPFK or by going online to kpfk.org and making a generous donation. Once again, that's 818-985-KPFK 
or go to kpfk.org to give your donation. Now listen, folks. We need you to show your love for independent radio by giving a much-needed financial contribution. KPFK calls on you and needs your help. 818-985-KPFK or kpfk.org. Let KPFK know that you are a Voices listener and show your support. Now, this is a crucial time for KPFK and the progressive left in general. We have a stake in what happens to KPFK, and we will not allow our voices to be silenced by the growing fascist movement here in the U.S. or anywhere else for that matter. It seems like the chickens come home to roost. It's laying eggs, and it's scrambled eggs, y'all. 818-985-KPFK. Together we can build a stronger KPFK with a voice that will boom across this nation and touch every heart and soul with the truth. 818-985-KPFK. And we thank you in advance for your support. Get on the nearest computer or the first available phone and show your love for the truth by giving a donation. 818-985-KPFK or kpfk.org. In closing, I'm going to play Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself by Sly and the Family Stone. It's touching because here at Voices from the Frontlines and at KPFK, you can be yourself and you have a voice and you're aligned with good trouble and the truth. It never gets old. We are revolutionaries. We are somebody. All power to the people.
Think what you can afford to give to your favorite nonprofit organizations. That's why we're so appreciative of those contributions that we actually do receive. It says a lot about how important KPFK is to you that you continue to voluntarily invest in this station. We thank you because you're helping to provide this essential community service to everyone in our region and beyond. You're helping to move the conversation forward. And if you're able to, but haven't yet, please make that investment in KPFK right now. Please go to kpfk.org and pledge securely online. Or call us at 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. Thank you.